my week will be a little bit easier. Uh, but, but this is the final week of God in Film, and I'm ending with the movie Belfast. I, I bet not a lot of you have seen the movie Belfast. Show of hands, how many of you saw this movie? All right, that's about what I expected. Really, really good movie. Like they, I would say Belfast and Coda. Uh, how many of you, after you saw the God in Film Coda, was like, I need to watch that movie, and you watched it? I bet a lot of you did. I, hopefully the same thing will happen with Belfast, because it's a really, really well-done movie. Coda won the Academy Award. Belfast was nominated for all the Academy Awards. And it is, it is a semi-autobiographical story put together by Kenneth Branagh. He wrote it. He directed it. You know, the actor, director, Kenneth Branagh. And, um, and, and so it's really about his life growing up, growing up in Berlin. And so Buddy, the main character, this nine-year-old boy who really is Kenneth Branagh, um, uh, he, he grew up in, you know, lived in Belfast, lived with his, his father, his mother, his, his older brother, his grandparents. In, in the late 60s in Northern Ireland, things were really rough, right? There was, the economy wasn't doing well. There weren't a lot of jobs. So his father had to um, go to England to work. He was a tradesman. And so he so would go to England to work and would try to come back when he could on the weekends or, you know, it's, it's, it's not really all that frequently, but he would try to be there when he could. And, uh, but, he, but he lived in this really, you know, kind of Id- idyllic working class neighborhood where everybody knew everyone and everybody looked out for everyone. And, you know, if, if, if you did something wrong, it wasn't just your parents who would say something, other neighbors would say something, and kids would all play together. And what was unique about this neighborhood in, in 1969 Ireland is that it was Catholics and Protestants who were living together, living together on this neighborhood, uh, in this neighborhood. Because in, in August 1969, something began known as the Trouble. And what the Trouble was, and this, this conflict lasted for 30 years, uh, you had a group of Protestant loyalists attack the homes of the Catholic nationalists who lived on Buddy Street, or lived all over, all over Berlin. So, so the conflict in Northern Ireland, you had the, for what the Protestants, they wanted to stay connected to the United Kingdom. They were loyal to the United Kingdom, to the Queen. But then you had the Catholics who were nationalists. They wanted Ireland to break off and become a separate country. And so, as I said, that led to the 30-year conflict in Northern Ireland. And it began in, in the summer of 1969, started on, on Buddy Street. And so this first clip, it just kind of shows, you know, the idyllic, you know, great little childhood that Buddy had but then how it all kind of came to a screeching halt once uh, the trouble began. So let's check it out. Yeah. 
couple? I ain't got a couple in my house. Was that right, Mr. West? Aye. And can you lend us a shield, buddy? I'll see what I can do. Say hello to your daddy for me, will you? Will do. Buddy, your ma's calling you for your tea. Thanks, Mrs. Kavanagh. She says it's tripe and onions. She did not. In a sandwich. She did not. She says you're a terrible man. <laughs> right. <laughs> of last night's rioting was all too clear. Small numbers of Catholics still peacefully living in Protestant areas were targeted. Their houses were attacked and marked, and intimidation may force them to leave their homes completely. Can these tightly knit neighborhoods ever return to the peace they shared together only 24 hours ago? Further reports. So, so there is war everywhere. Jesus made it really clear. You know, he said there's going to be wars, there's going to be rumors of wars. But there's something about what, what happened in Northern Ireland that started in 1969 that just hits different because it was defined as a fight between Protestants and Catholics. It was a, like a religious war. It was, it was if, you were, if you were Protestant, you were on one side. If you were Catholic, you were on the other side. And it's just crazy when you stop and you think that this bloody battle that went on for 30 years was basically being fought by, among Christian denominations of people who define themselves as being followers of Jesus, being Catholic or being Protestant. And, and so what it made me think about, and kind of an opportunity for us to talk about something that I think is really important, is to define like bad faith versus good faith. Because a lot of times we just think like, well, faith is faith. Well, but no, I think that actually there's, there's bad faith. There's faith that, you, that someone can have that rather than make them more like Jesus, rather than like lead them to Jesus, lead them to becoming more loving and more, more open and more kind, you know, and, and closer to God and more emotionally healthy and, and just, you know, connected in all sorts of ways. There's faith that you can have that kind of leads you away from that. There's, there's bad faith. And you know what? I've been a pastor for a long time, and, and I have seen that for many, many people, the biggest barrier that some people have to getting connected to Jesus and centering their life on Jesus and getting, getting life from Jesus is bad faith experiences. So maybe, you know what, you grew up in a, in a church or, or, or your, your encounters in, you know, along the way on your journey was bad faith. 
But you don't think of it as bad faith. You just think of it as faith. And you're like, well, no, this, you know, this, isn't, this isn't for me. Many people have had an experience with faith, but it was bad faith. It might have been Christian in name, but it was not, all, it was not about the teachings of Jesus. And so I want to I talk about that a little bit. And so what I want to do is il- just talk about three elements of bad faith. And for a couple of them, I can illustrate them from the movie. Uh, and, and then talk about what is good faith. Like, what is the essence of good faith? And so first off, elements of bad faith. Number one, bad faith is fear-based. Bad faith is fear-based. So I have a quick little clip here. I got a couple little clips I'm going to show here this morning. Not, not too many long ones. But uh, so, so Buddy and his family, they're Protestant, uh, but they live in a neighborhood where, as we said, there's Catholics and Protestants living together and everybody gets along really well and it's a great, you know, close-knit, working-class community. And so after the trouble begins, you know, the differences between Catholics and Protestants are in the forefront. And so Buddy's father, they're talking about the Catholics and the father says something that, that um, Catholicism is a fear-based religion. And so then it cuts to Buddy at his church, his Protestant church, which, as you'll see, is a little bit fear-based. Now, let me just say this. I actually realized later on in the week I should have had a version sent to me uh, that had subtitles because the Irish accent is thick. And so it might be a little hard for you to catch it. I hope you, I hope you can catch it. When I, I'll be honest, when I watched this at home, I had to watch it with subtitles because sometimes the Irish brogue is a lot. So let's check out the scene. There's nothing against Catholics. But it's a religion of fear. Protestants, you will die. Agonizingly. And where will you go when you shuffle off this pestilential mortal coil? Where? Well, I will tell you where. Picture the scene. A fork in the road. In one direction, a straight and narrow highway. In the other, a long and winding road which stretches down and away into an unknowable distance. One will take you to the bosom of the Lord's grace, forever and a day caress you with beatific love. And the other will spree you into an eternal pit of sulfurous suffering, postulating pain from which you will never, ever through the seven circles of hell escape. And I ask you here and now, which road will you take? No, money. Thanks, Thanks very, very much. much. Really good. <laughs> All right. So listen, some of you might be like, finally, I got to see some good preaching in this church. You know, Phil, you need to sweat a little bit more. You need to yell a little bit more. Um, but, but so, buddy, you can see, you know, like this, you know, this fear of hell and you got to, which road are you on? And buddy can't sleep at night because he's wanting to make sure he's on the right road and he's drawing pictures. And so if you went to a church where like what the main motivation was, was fear, 
right? Whether like fear of hell, right? That it's like if you don't toe the line, you know what? God is going to, I can't even, I can't even do justice to what that guy said, but God's going to throw you in the, the burning fires of hell. Or, or maybe you lived your life thinking that if you, if you didn't believe all the right things, or if you asked a wrong question, or if you looked different, or if you thought differently about something, or you, know, you voted the wrong way, or whatever it was, that God was going to like get you, you know, that he was going to like throw a lightning bolt on you, or, or you had this fear of being shamed or, or humiliated, where it was just kind of normal that people would get called out. Like if somebody wasn't towing the line, you know, they would, they would get called out. They would get shamed or humiliated. And, and oftentimes when there's fear-based religion, it's very manipulative and very controlling. And so maybe it was through fear, like your experience of faith, which I would say I think was bad faith, was that, uh, you know what, you, you were being told like who you could talk to, who you couldn't talk to, what you'd had to think about this, what you had to think about that, that like there was what you could do with your money, what you couldn't do, that there was a lot of control that was there. Um, I'm going to get into a little bit more that, that fear is not the way of Jesus, right? Jesus made it very clear. Good faith is based on love. We'll talk about that more in a moment. But it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. The second thing about bad faith is that bad faith is arrogant, unteachable, and unkind. Bad faith is arrogant and unteachable and unkind. So I would say that if, you're, if someone's faith makes them, you know, prideful, where they think that they're better than everyone else. And so rather than trying to have connections and trying to understand people, that like all relationships and every, every interaction is just an opportunity for you to kind of show off how righteous you are or to convince people that they're wrong, you know, and just kind of come up with arguments and ways that you could let them know that they're wrong. There's no dialogue. There's only preaching at people. There's only, you know, the goal of every relationship is to convince people that you're right and that you're wrong. And if that defines all your relationships, I'd say it's kind of the fruit of bad faith. Now, let me just get real here for a minute. I would say that some of the meanest people that I've ever met in my life are the most religious people. You ever notice that? You ever, you know, that, that there's something about there's something about believing that you are morally superior to other people, believing that you're right and that they're wrong and that you have God on your side, you know, that you're one of the pure Protestants or whatever it is. There's something about that that can make people really, really mean. How many of you, I don't need to show of hands, but how many of you in your family growing up, your extended family, you know, aunts, cousins, uncles, everyone else, the one, the person in your family that you were most afraid of, like when you were a kid, the one who was like, please don't leave me alone with aunt, whatever, was the most religious that was in your family. I bet a lot of people would say, yeah, that was, that was the reality. The third element of bad faith that I want to talk about before we start talking about good faith is that bad faith stirs up hate and division. Bad faith puts up walls, builds up hate, builds up division. Bad faith separates people. So this next clip that I'm going to show you, it's a couple different scenes put together. You'll see Buddy and his family talking about the differences between Catholics and Protestants. Kind of a funny scene. I want to show more of it. I had to cut it for time. But uh, he's talking with his little friend about how can you tell a Catholic? You know, you can tell a Catholic by their name. Uh, and then the last, the last scene is... Um, uh, the guy who's the head of the, of the Protestant kind of uprising and violence has been pressuring Buddy's father to join and to become a part of this, you know, this, this revolution, this movement. So let's check out this next clip. Buddy Catholic told me as long as Catholics keep confessing everything bad to do to a priest, then they can do whatever they want and God will forgive them all the time. 
Paddy Cabin, his family's not going to be living on the street for much longer, so you better check he's not taking the hand out of you. Oh, I don't know how it works. They get a lot of water thrown on them and then they're okay, I think that's it. Why aren't you going to? Because <laughs> me and your father have business to discuss. God understands. Come on. Mm -hmm. What are those? <laughs> My little secret now, come on. I've had too much God for one day. Well, your granny says you can never have too much God. You might need him before too long. Look, Was that our side that done all that to them Catholic houses in our street, Daddy? There is no our side and their side in our street. Well, there didn't used to be anyway. It's all bloody religion. That's the problem. Then why are you sending us to church? Because your granny would kill me if I didn't. But, Daddy, you can tell them by their names. Oi. Well, if he's a Patrick or a Sean, he's a Catholic. And if he's a Billy or a William, he's a Protestant. There's more names than that, though. I know that. Just saying, them's the obvious ones. What about Morris? Uh, don't know. We've a wee fella down our street called Thomas. What's he? Protestant, definitely. He's not. He's a Catholic. No, he's not. He is. Should have burnt his house out the other night, because his family is Catholic. Sure, we've a cousin called Thomas. I know. That's what I'm saying. Be good, son. If you can't be good, be, be careful. careful. Seems like only yesterday you and me were in school together. You're gonna need to stay away from my family. That's big talk for a fellow who's never here. You can rely on me to be here when it matters. I hope your time is good. Things get out of hand pretty quick, aren't they, sports? The other problem with men like you. You think you're better than the rest of us? And the problem with men like you is, you know you're not. We'll keep it simple. You're with us or you're against us. Clock's ticking. You're a soft touch. Time for real Protestants to step up. Like you're no real Protestant. You're a jumped up gangster and always were. So, I would have to say, out of you know, all the years that I've been around, I've never seen our country more divided. Just, it seems that there's more division, there's more hatred, there's more hostility from all sides. You know, that you have one side, you know, they're not just disagreeing with this side, they're, they're saying this side is evil and they're hating this side and then the, that side hates them right back. And that's, you know, that's going to happen, that happens in the world, that, that's always, you know, a case of kind of human nature. But what really, what concerns me is that oftentimes it seems that it's Christians who were kind of doing more to stoke the division, anger and hostility than, than anybody. And it shouldn't be that way. And so, and so there's bad faith, right? And so I've named some of the elements of bad faith. Let's talk about what comprises good faith, right? What is, the, what is the faith that leads us to life? What is the faith when we get connected with Jesus that really does change us and make a difference and lead us to light, not, you know, in the other direction? Jesus said this in Matthew 22, verses 34 to 40. It says, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. So Jesus made it really clear. Good faith. The kind of faith that comes from a genuine encounter with Jesus is a faith that will make you love. It is a faith 
that will make you love God. Your motivation in your relationship with God, if it's good faith, it's not fear, it's not guilt, it's not shame, it's love. It says this in Titus chapter 3, verses 3 to 5, At one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. See, what this says is we're going about, we're living our life, we're kind of a mess, and then all of a sudden, the kindness and love and the, the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared. And all of a sudden, we saw in Jesus a love that we never saw anywhere else. And we said, man, I need to get close to Jesus. No one's ever loved me like Jesus. I want Jesus in the center of my life. It's his kindness that leads us to repentance. And so there is no place. There's no place in good faith, right, a real connection, life with Jesus. There is no place for fear and guilt and shame. Because what the Bible says is that God's, that God's perfect love drives out fear. And let me just tell you, if you are a follower of Jesus, and if Jesus is in the center of your life, guilt and shame no longer need to be a part of your life. Do you know the difference between guilt and shame? We were talking about this in our Alpha class this past week. We had a really good conversation about it. Guilt are, is when you feel bad about the things that you've done. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, you don't have to, you don't have, to have any guilt because what the Bible says is that, is that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So you have been cleansed. All of your guilt, it's all washed away. You're, you're perfectly restored. You're perfectly made whole. Jesus has, has taken all of your sins and thrown them into the sea of forgetfulness. You don't need guilt anymore. And you don't need shame. You know what shame is? Shame, guilt is when you feel bad about something that you've done. Shame is when you feel bad about who you are. And you just feel like, oh man, I'm a mess. I've disappointed people. See, if you're a follower of Jesus, you don't don't need shame in your life. There's no place for it because you are fearfully and wonderfully made. And Jesus knows you inside and out, right? he, He knows you better than you know yourself. And he says, you are so valuable and you are so loved that I went to the cross and shed my precious blood so that you can be forgiven and so that you can be restored. And what the Bible says is that his banner over us, his banner over us is love. You are radically loved by God. There's no place for guilt. There's no place for shame. God's perfect love drives out that fear. And so for us as as followers of Jesus, amen, we realize like what it is we're called, good faith, is that we love God and we love people. That's it. As Jesus said, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is the bullseye. This is what Christian faith is all about, that we become more and more like Jesus and that we live a life of love. The Bible couldn't be any clearer about this. I mean, it's just page after page after page. Colossians 3.14. I got a bunch of verses for you. I'll try to read them fast. It says, and it says, over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them together in perfect unity. So what it says is love is the thing, all the other virtues, kindness, compassion, gentleness, all these things, love is the thing that holds it all together. 1 Peter 4.8 says, Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers a multitude of sins. Above all, above everything, we are to love. So if someone has different political views than you, right, we are to put love above that. 
If somebody's lifestyle makes you feel uncomfortable for whatever reason, we put love above that. If someone is from a different culture and this creates some some cultural issues, some discomfort, we put love above the discomfort. If someone has a different faith or different beliefs about things, we put love above everything we put love. If somebody's kind of annoying, right, we put love above their being annoying. Right? We put love above everything else. And, and just to make it even more clear, 1 Corinthians 16, 14 says, do everything in love. Couldn't be clearer than that. And so this is a great test for us, right? Everything that we do. So before you're about to think something, you know, dwell on something, ruminate over something, ask yourself, is, this, is doing this, is this going to lead me to love? Before you say something, before you speak to someone, say, is what I'm about to say consistent with love? Before you're about to do a thing, that you stop and say, is doing this thing consistent with love? Right? Because we are to do everything in love. 1 John 3, 16 to 17 says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And so how do we know what love looks like? The Bible says really clear, look at Jesus. Look at what Jesus has done for us. Jesus laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? And so what this means, if we're becoming more like Jesus, if we're growing in our faith, it means that we're becoming more and more aware that every single person that we come in contact with, they have unsurpassable worth. They're made in the image of God. They're redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus. And so we get so gripped by this that we can't, we can't help but treat them. We can't help but try to treat them the way Jesus treated us, right? Jesus sacrificed for us, so we sacrifice for other people. If we see that somebody's hungry, we feed them. If, if we see that somebody needs help, we help them. And so that is what, that's the bullseye. That's what it is that we're after. And we, you know what, Christians, we put so many other things, you know, before that. You know, I'm all for, I'm all for knowing the Bible, right? But, but the bullseye is not to know the Bible. The bullseye is to live in love. Now, I believe the more you know the Bible, it's good, it should lead you to live more of a life of love. Right? The bullseye is not having right theology. The bullseye is living in love. Now, I think the better your theology is, the more it's going to lead you to love. Right? The bullseye is not how many sins of the flesh can I stay away from. The bullseye is that we live in love. Right? The bullseye is not, is not you know, can I get to church every single week? And listen, I'm a fan of you getting to church every single week. But that's not the bullseye. The bullseye is is living in love, that we, that we love, that our life is defined by this cross-shaped love, that we love people the way Jesus loves us. And you know what? There, they, we've had so many people over the last couple of months, we've been in this great season of, of so many new people coming to the church. And I've just, you know, so enjoyed being in the lobby and meeting so many new people. And, and we've got people who are just kind of figuring all this out for the first time, figuring out who Jesus is and, and what that means to them. And we've got people who've been Christians for a long, long time and everything in between. But, but here's a great question for you to ask. When you're thinking about connecting with a church, right, so often what we think about is the building. We think, oh, the building is nice. And we think about the programs that they have or what do they have for kids, what do they have for or, you know, the music is great or the preacher's okay. Those are, those are all good things to think about. But a better thing for you to think about is if I join this church, will I be challenged to become more loving? 
If I become a part of this church, will this church, will this community, will together, will we try to learn how to hit the bullseye? That we would become more loving, that we would become more like Jesus. Ephesians 5, 1 to 2 says, Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. The word here where it says, Follow God's example, the Greek word is mimitus, where we get the word mimic. And so we are to mimic Jesus. And what it says is, I love it, it says, walk in the way of love. You know, the early Christians, they called themselves the way. That was the name they gave themselves. They were the way. And I think, you know what? I think they were thinking about this. They were thinking because they walked in the way of love, they followed Jesus. And the Bible makes it really clear in 1 Corinthians 13 that if we don't get this right, we don't have anything. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 to 3 says, If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. See, what this is saying is that no activity has any kingdom value unless it's done in love. And anything that is not loving has no kingdom value. It doesn't matter what you claim your motives are. It doesn't matter what your ends are. It doesn't matter what spiritual gifts are on display. It doesn't matter what leadership gifts are on display. Love is the sine qua non of the Christian faith, meaning the thing that is absolutely necessary. And you know, the reality is, is we have missed this. The church has missed this for so long. We've made so many other things the bullseye. You know, for the first 300 years, the church did a good job. The church, God, they walked in the way of love. And they walked in the way of love and they ended up changing the world. But then something happened at around 400 AD that the Christians got political power around the time of Constantine. And so we got, we got the, the, the weapons of the world, right? We got the seats of power. And then all of a sudden, it, it just changed everything. We forgot about the way of love, right? If we had an enemy, we forgot about turning the other cheek. And instead, we said, let's chop off their head. And you had Christian-on-Christian Christian wars that have gone on. So like Northern Ireland, you know, is a recent one. But do you know in the 16th and 17th century, Europe was engulfed in Christian war after Christian war after Christian war. All these Christians fighting and killing each other because they thought they were pursuing the cause of Christ. And so it's estimated that in those two centuries, there might have been more than 5 million people who were killed because of these Christian wars, possibly a third of the entire population of Europe. See, and I just, I feel like so many times the way that we talk about what it means to be a Christian, the way that we talk about the past, we, we lose the reality of this bullseye of love, right? So you've got this guy named John Calvin, and John Calvin is seen as a hero. He lived, I think, in the, in the 16th, 17th century, and he's a theologian. And uh, you might have heard the term Calvinism. It comes from Calvin, and he wrote Calvin's Institutes. is probably one of the more influential books, Christian books, that have ever been written. And so he was a reformer, and he um, was the leader of Geneva, Switzerland. And, and John Calvin thought if there was a heretic, if there was someone who didn't believe the right things about Jesus and about the Bible and about faith, that they should be burned at the stake. 
And so John Calvin, you know, in Geneva in Switzerland, would regularly burn people at the stake. And so there was this guy named Michael Militas. And Michael Militas, he was this really interesting guy, this kind of Renaissance guy. He, he did a lot of like research in medical fields and stuff. But he, he had some beliefs that went against the, you know, Calvin's beliefs. So he wasn't a fan of infant baptism, right? Kind of like, I don't, we don't do infant baptism. We do infant dedication. We do believer baptism. He, I guess, would have agreed with me. Uh, he also, though, he had some iffy ideas about the Trinity. You know, his views on the Trinity were a little bit sketchy. And, uh, but anyway, so Calvin had Militus burned at the stake. And so we look back, you know, at Calvin and Militus, and we say, Militus is the heretic, and Calvin's the hero. But if we actually really, and I'm not, I'm not saying anything here about for or against Calvinism. I'm not getting into that, for those of you aware of it. But what I am saying is that I think it shows that we missed the bullseye. Because if, if the bullseye is that we love, if the bullseye is that we follow the way of love, who's more of a heretic? The guy who doesn't have the right view or whatever on, on the Trinity or on, on infant baptism or the person who thinks it's okay to take someone who claims to follow Jesus and burn him alive at the stake? Who's more of the heretic? See, now we're a little bit more civilized these days, right? We don't burn heretics at the stake. But are we loving? Let me just, let me ask you, seriously, if this is the bullseye, if this is what it's all about, are you hitting that bullseye? Are you becoming more loving? Is your life, the way you live your life, becoming more cross-shaped the longer you walk with Jesus? And I tell you what, if you really want to know, don't answer that question yourself, but let, you know, ask the people around you, ask your spouse, ask your kids, ask your friends, ask your coworkers. Because the reality is, you know, listen, it would be great in this moment that we live in, if when, when non-Christians thought about Christians, they said, you know, we don't really fully understand everything about my Christian friend, but, but man, the Christians that I know, they're so loving. I mean, they're just like, they, they just will give you the shirt off their back, and they, they just love, and they just, and they, boy, I just know that if I need something, I can go to my, my Christian friends. They believe some weird stuff. I don't get all of it, but, but boy, they, they, really, they really have my back. They really love. But that's not what people are saying. When there are polls, people say things about Christians, that they're intolerant, that they're judgmental, that they're hateful, that they're self-righteous, that they're political. Listen, it is absolutely tragic that when most people think about followers of Jesus now, they're not thinking about people who follow the way of love. They're people thinking about people who are, are a political voting block, that that's what Christians have been reduced to in our culture. You know, I saw something, and again, I'm just, I'm just talking about the bullseye, like what is it we're supposed to be after, what it is, that it, what it means to follow Jesus. You know, I, with all the horrible events that we had, I talked about what happened in Buffalo, and then we had Tuesday, and then, and then you know, we had the terrible situation that happened down in Texas. And my wife is a fourth grade teacher, and so it kind of hit home a little, even a little bit more because it was a fourth grade classroom where this gunman uh, entered and, and killed so many kids and killed the teachers. And so, you know, we've all been dealing with this, and it's just been so heavy, and you're just like, you know, what's going on? But there's this, listen, there's this, this Christian that I know who's kind of nationally known, and I, I know this guy, and I follow him on social media, and I just, I was shocked this past week, a couple, this a couple days after the horrible events on Tuesday, that he used his social media platform to make an argument uh, that, that Christians should be, that we should be able to buy AR-15 rifles. And I just thought, like, what is, what? No, ser- like, seriously, like, are you, are you, like, not getting into, like, Second Amendment, whatever, but, but, like, this is what you want to use your, your influence for? 
This is what you think is helpful for a follower of Jesus to talk about like right now? We've lost the thread, right? We've, we've, there's so much that goes on in, in you know, Western Christianity right now. Well, we just got to take a step back and say, if, if everything that I'm saying, you know, we've got, you know, the war in Northern Ireland, we've got all, you know, the, the, the wars, the Christian wars that went on, we've got all the stuff that happens, right? And, and we can't change the past. We can't fix what happened with Constantine in the Roman Empire. We can't change the Middle Ages, the conflict in Northern Ireland. We can't single-handedly change a political climate in the United States. But what we can do is that we as individuals and we as the North Jersey Vineyard Church, we can say, you know what, we want to be committed to living differently. We want to recognize what the bullseye is. That the bullseye is is that we follow the way of love. That the bullseye is that we love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we love our neighbor as ourself. And that we we just try to run everything through that grid. Is thinking this, saying this, listening to this, watching this. You know, is this something that is going to enable me, help me walk more in the way of love? Or is this something that's going to make me more fearful, more divisive, more angry? And that we commit ourselves to walking in the way of love is the bullseye of our lives. It's the most important thing. I have one more clip I want to show you. And, uh, and in this clip, so you have, you have uh, Buddy, things had gotten really bad, and they're realizing they have, to, they have to leave. They're going to have to leave Belfast and move over to England. He's got his grandfather and his grandmother. He's very close to them. His grandfather's in the hospital. And there's this, this, this conversation that, uh, that, that Buddy and his grandfather have together that just, just captured something that I thought was so powerful that I just wanted to end with this morning. So let's check it out. His work's given my dad a house in England now if he wants one. It's got a garden and everything and two toilets and they're both inside the house. There's nothing wrong with an outside toilet except on an airplane. <laughs> Mama says if we went across the water... You wouldn't understand the way we talk. That shouldn't be a problem, son. I've been married to your granny for 50 years. I've never understood a word you said. And if they can't understand you, then they're not listening. And that's their problem. You know, when I was in Leicester, they said the same thing about me, you know? So I put on a different bloody accent every day just to annoy them. I never knew who it was, but I did. And that's the only one who needs to know. You know who you are, don't you? Yes, Pop. Your buddy from Belfast 15. Where everybody knows you. And your pop looks out for you. And your mommy looks out for you. Your daddy looks out for you. Your granny looks out for you. Your brother looks out for you. The whole family looks out for you. And wherever you go and whatever you become, that'll always be the truth. And that thought will keep you safe. I'll keep you happy. You remember that for me? Yes, Pop. Aye, fine man you are. Now, forget about what your father and your mother want. What do you want? I want you and my granny to come too. So I just love how his grandfather just reminds him who he is, right? He's going to go off to England, and, 
but he's got to remember who he is, right? That he's someone who's loved. That his, that his mother and his father and his grandparents, that everybody looks out for him and that he's loved. And he said, as long as you remember this, you're going to be okay. And it made me think about Jesus in John chapter 13, right before the last night that Jesus spent with his disciples, right before Jesus went and did the most incredible act of love that's ever been done, that ever could be done, when he laid his life down on the cross. It says it was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And so do you catch that, the connection between what the grandfather said to Buddy and Jesus before he was able to lay his life down on the cross and wash the disciples' feet and then wash, you know, them, them through his sacrifice? It says he, he knew who he was, right? He knew that he'd come from God. He knew he was returning to God. And so because he knew who he was, he was able to pick up the towel and he was able to serve and he was able to lay his life down. So how do we hit the bullseye? How do we become a church? How do we become individuals in a church that's trying to get it right, that's trying to get the bullseye, that's trying to become more like Jesus? It's not by effort. It's not by being like, oh, I'm going to work harder, I'm going to be more loving. You know what the reality is? I think oftentimes that has the opposite effect. And sometimes that seems to be the case. right? How, how do we do it? I think it's the same way we saw Jesus. right? We need to know who we are. You need to know that you're loved. It's been the theme of everything, the worship and everything else this morning. I think it's this. God wants you to know that you're loved. He wants you to know how much he loves you. He wants you to know that he's for you. He wants you to know that so you can have good faith. So your faith can be something that will lead you closer to life and closer to wholeness and closer, closer to God, closer to Jesus, closer to joy, closer to happiness. That'll, you know, closer to eternal life. He doesn't want you to have bad faith. That's based on fear. It's based on judgment. That's based on hostility. That's based on division. He wants to draw you closer to himself. And the way that that happens is we know that we know that we know that we're loved by our Heavenly Father. We know that God loves us. We know that he's for us. And the more we know that, the more that's real to us, the more the eyes of our hearts are opened up to understand and to see how much God loves us, then we're gonna, it's going to be easier to hit the bullseye. It's going to be easier for that love. It's going to flow out like rivers of living water, Jesus said. 1 John 4, 19 says, We love because He first loved us. And so I want to challenge us, church. I want to challenge us to realize what the bullseye is and that we will commit ourselves to hitting the bullseye but realize the only way that's going to happen is as we are filled with the love of the Father because we love because He first loved us. So let's all stand together. And I just want to pray for a moment. We're going to do a couple things. Let me just pray. So Lord, I ask for your Holy Spirit to come right now. And God, forgive us. Forgive us how we've made you and faith and Christianity about so many other things other than about love. And God, we don't want to do that anymore, God. We just commit ourselves, God. We want to love you 
with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We want to love our neighbor as ourselves. And God, we just acknowledge that we can't do that, God. We acknowledge that we don't have that in us unless you fill us with your love. So come, Holy Spirit. Lord, reveal to us right now. Bring the love of the Father into this room right now. Come, Holy Spirit. Show us that you love us. God, show us that you're for us. Show us, God, that we are radically loved by you so that we can know who we are, knowing that we've come from you, knowing that we'll go back to you, knowing that you undergird and support and strengthen everything that we are so that we could lay our lives down for one another, so we could love, live our lives with this cross-shaped love for your glory. So come, Holy Spirit. Just take a moment right now and ask God, to just reveal to you afresh how much he loves you. Just quietly in your heart, just say, God, would you, would you please show me how much you love me? Thank you, Lord. More, Holy Spirit, we bless your presence here, God. And you know what? Some of you really needed to hear this message about bad faith. Because you've had experiences in churches or you've had experiences in the past and you just thought like, well, this is faith. But now maybe you've realized, no, no, that was, that was bad faith. And it's been, it's been kind of this barrier. It's been this thing that's really blocked you from moving, getting closer to Jesus and coming into everything that he has for you. And so I think it's just for you, some people right now, it's like kind of important that you just take those, the hurts, the disappointments, the things that you experience, and you just lay them down at Jesus' feet. And you say, okay, Lord, I know this wasn't from you. And I know this is not who you are. And so I'm going to leave this behind as I move closer to you. So I just feel like some of you, you grew up, like there was some crazy stuff that you dealt with as a kid. There's some, maybe a, an experience that you had in, in a church, maybe even in this church, I don't know. But where you were really hurt and where it wasn't Jesus, it wasn't good faith, it was bad faith. And the Lord just wants to set you free. The Lord wants to kind of reframe that and say, I have something better for you. I have something different for you. So, so give, give your disappointment, give your hurt, give your bitterness, give it to me and let me lead you into the future that I have for you. So come Holy Spirit. Bless your presence here. We're going to um, invite the uh, people from the, the uh, prayer ministry team to come up. We're also going to pass the basket. So, uh, so those of you who uh, are in that first row, we have baskets underneath that, that row. And if we can just pass them down, it's a little bit harder today because a lot of people are away this weekend. But uh, so you might have to like, don't throw the basket, just kind of walk a little bit. But just pass it all the way down and we can put the, the connection card as well as a physical uh, offering if you have that in the basket as it passes by. But let's have people from the prayer ministry team come up. There are some specific words that the prayer ministry team got this morning, things they felt God wanted to do. Uh, they get together, they pray, they say, God, what specific things do you want to do? They had a sense that there's somebody, you've been, you've been feeling really lightheaded.
Uh, and even like, I, I would say even like during the last like half an hour, you've been, had this like foggy brain where you've just been feeling like kind of out of sorts and that maybe, maybe that's some kind of like spiritual thing that's going on. I want to pray for you to, uh, to just, be, just to be set free, to be healed. Uh, someone who's been having difficulty breathing, it's hard for you to take deep breaths and just want to pray that God would, that God would heal you. Um, someone who has discomfort in their jaw, going back to the ears, uh, and, and also someone, a couple that you've really been struggling with your marriage, and, and we all have struggles, you know, marriage is hard, uh, but maybe this, the last couple of days have been particularly painful, and God just wants you to know that he sees you, he loves you, and he wants to make a way forward for you. And I just want to say too, listen, for, for those of you who just need to be filled afresh with the love of God, come up and let somebody pray for you, just simply that you'd be filled with God's love. And especially those, maybe you, maybe you know, like what I was saying about bad faith, has been something that's been in the way. And we want to pray for you that, that you might need to, there's something that happens when you take that step and you, and you confess and you let somebody pray with you. There's, there's life that happens. Like Jesus shows up in a unique way. And I think maybe for some of you that could be really important right now. All right, God bless you guys. Have a wonderful weekend. Enjoy the holiday and uh, we'll see you soon.